Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Little known fact about my guest today, when we had this conversation, he was Tony nominated. And now that you're hearing this conversation, he is the winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best New Musical on Broadway. Welcome its author, Michael R. Jackson, to the podcast. A-OK. Everyone. My guest today is the playwright, composer, lyricist Michael R. Jackson. His musical, A Strange Loop, is currently on Broadway and has garnered 11 Tony nominations. By the time we listen to this, many of those will be wins. A Strange Loop has already won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, the New York Drama Critics Circle Award, the Lambda Literary Award. It has won all the awards. He is a graduate of the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU. I'm so honored to have Michael R. Jackson on the podcast today. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Alana. Thank you for having me. I am so um, lucky because I listened uh, and listen because I, I just saw the show again to the cast recording of your musical every day. It's just become one of those shows that I listen to on the daily. What do you listen to? Do you listen to musicals? What music do you have in your ears when I'm listening to your show? Um, hmm. Well, these days, I, I, I go for like these long walks near my apartment. And I'm finding that these, like in this particular moment, I'm doing a lot of Carly Simon. <laughs> um. Her her 1985 album Spoiled Girl is so good, and then but also I have like a greatest hits and I just I don't know I'm I'm in a, I'm in a Carly Simon phase for the moment. Well, I feel like you have been very um, forthcoming both in your interviews and in your musical A Strange Loop about certain female vocalists and artists who have been really influential on you. And before we get into your musical, which really is the best musical. Um, it just is the best musical. Um, it does everything you want a musical to do. I love musical theater. Not everybody does, but I really do. It's something I love listening to. It's something I, 
I associate growing up with with special occasions. That's how we got to celebrate these milestones in our lives. So I'm sentimental about them, but you've really created something brand new. And it's um, in my lifetime. It's just really exciting to be in the presence of someone to to get to speak with you today. I'm I'm emotional and honored to get to be with you. Um, I want to go back before we get into your show, um, your Pulitzer Prize winning show. Um, can you tell me about growing up? Like, where did you grow up? Who was in your house? What were you doing? Um, yeah, I'm from Detroit, Michigan, originally. Um, I grew up with two parents, um, and an older brother who was about four, who's four and a half years older than me. Um, I always sort of described my childhood as kind of a very ordinary kind of middle, middle class life is how I describe it. Um, I was, you know, we went to church every Sunday. We were very involved in church stuff. I was also very involved in the arts, um, like dance classes and acting classes and, or not act or not acting classes, but like acting. Um, I was in a child, child actor group our theater company, um, I was writing, like I, I was taking piano lessons. I was in an all city chorus. Like I was very busy kid. Um, and so my childhood was, you know, for all intents and purposes, pretty normal. What did your parents do uh, professionally? My father was a police officer and later a police lieutenant for uh, the Detroit Police Department. And then he retired after 27 years. And then he became a, a private security consultant at General Motors. And then my mother worked for General Motors as uh, in the finance uh, department in different capacities. And were you close with your brother growing up? Um, I wouldn't say that we were close. I think that like for a long time, like our age difference always made, made us a little bit have anim animosity toward each other uh-huh. but um because we also were just very different um I th- but as we've gotten older I think we're again I wouldn't say close is the right word but we love each other yeah um well it sounds like family so yeah. you you know I grew up in New Jersey so getting to Manhattan I just drove over the George Washington Bridge it was not a big deal to come here. But when you're from the Midwest or other places, there's this idea about New York City. Um, Had you gotten, gotten, did you get to come to New York before you came to college? When did you visit? How did you know this is a place that you wanted to come in your adult life? Um, I probably thought about New York just because I saw it on television and in movies. Yeah. Um, I didn't come here until I was 17. I went on an exchange trip, uh, exchange program trip to Israel uh, when I was 17. And part of our, like, orientation, our orientation was here. And so that was the first time I'd ever been to New York. And, and when I saw it, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, the hustle and the bustle of it really, really attracted me. And I had already decided that I wanted to go to Columbia when I, uh, you know, so when I was applying for colleges, I applied to Columbia and then I applied to NYU as an afterthought. And then I, for my spring break trip, I went to go visit my friends in Columbia and then I called my parents and I read through my Columbia rejection letter. 
but but I was devastated. But then Wait, I read me like. Said, listen, Michael, the letter, you're away. The letter has arrived. Do you want us to read it to you? Like, how does that go down? Yeah. So I called them and they said, oh, you got like something in the mail can from Columbia. And so I said, open it and read it to me. And they read, you know, we're sorry to inform you that you have not been accepted for admittance into the like 1999 class of Columbia or something like that along those lines. And I was like devastated. But then they said, well, a letter came from NYU and they said, we're happy to inform you that you've been admitted into, you know, the Tisch School of the Arts, you know, traumatic writing program, which I forgot not even applied to. Where, are so. you like at a phone booth? Like where? No, I was in, I was in the phone. Columbia, I was in a Columbia dorm with my friends who were there. <laughs> And so I had met all their friends. I had, they'd show me all around the campus. I was like fully thinking, like I was yeah. going to be on the quad, you know, with my white friends and it was going to be like living the life of Riley. That's what I thought at the time. Oh man, that is like, that's an awful day. And it obviously it is all worked out, but my heart breaks. I can only well, imagine. It was awful day, but the NYU piece of it actually was kind of interesting because I was like, oh, right, I applied to this school. Yeah. So I then called NYU and scheduled a tour, and I went down, and I, like, walked around, and I was like, oh, there's, like, no campus, but, like, it's New York. And, yeah. like, and then I was like, I have to convince my parents to let me come here, which is what I did. Well, I just, we buried the lead a little bit. Just tell me a little bit about the Israel part. Like, why was that where you were going? Was that through your church? Like, what was that piece of it? There was, it was just um, one of the vice principals at my high school. I went to uh, one of the sort of prominent high schools in Detroit called Cass Tech. And one of the vice principals there was this guy named Gene Sperling, who was connected to this program called the American Israel Friendship League Student Ambassador Program. And they, they were offering free trips to American students who just wanted to go. And I was like, a free trip? I'll go anywhere, you know? And so... And nobody, and also, it was a program that I think that was usually very competitive, but in my high school, like, literally only two other people wanted to go, so we all got to go. We didn't have to do any sort of competing or anything. They just said, you're the only three who express interest, you get to go. And it was, like, all paid for. It was great. So you had a good time. Have you been back since? I have not. Do you, have you traveled a fair amount outside of the U.S.? I haven't. Like, the last time I was out of the country, really... Well, I went to Turks and Caicos last December, but prior to that, last time I was out of the country, it was, it was Israel in 1998. Okay. I'm going to Greece um, in a couple of weeks, though, so... So that'll be fun. Yeah. So this show, um, a strange... First of all, can we tell people that you're not feeling well and why, or would you rather us not oh. include that in the in the episode? Um, we can tell people. Okay, so Michael sounds a little bit nasal, um, although right. I'm a big fan of nasal, and uh, because he has COVID. That's right. Yes. Um, it we are, sucks. It does suck. Um, do you do you know how or why or where you were, or do you have no idea? Um, I I, I went to a party, you know. I had I was brazen. Who knows? Was it a good party? Was it worth it? Was it was a good party. <laughs> I think it was, to be honest, like it probably was worth it in the long run because this window of time right now is yes. literally exactly the perfect window for me to have gotten it. Because if I got it a week later, I would have to miss the Tony Awards. That cannot happen. 
That but I didn't want to. I would want to miss that. Yeah. Okay. So, um, a strange loop is. Um, and also, it might have messed up my trip to Greece. Yes. Too. No. None. Of, this is perfect. And I was very worried about going to Greece because I'd never had COVID before, and I was heard all these horror stories about people traveling to other countries, getting COVID there, not being able to leave. It becomes very expensive. All of that stuff. So, and all things, even though it like super sucks and I hate it. This is like the best week to have it. Yes. So, so congratulations on the best week to have right. COVID. Um, right. But I just wish you the speediest recovery. And, and what we really want is no long COVID. That's the thing. It's not that the COVID. It's the, it's the other stuff that comes with it. Um, I want to know sort of how it's been feeling to have your show, A Strange Loop on Broadway and what the experience has been for someone who really wrote a show, it sounds to me, without any real expectations, except to write the show authentically and honestly. Um, Where where did you think it would land? I thought that at most I would get like maybe a nice off-Broadway production, which is what I got. Yeah. And so when I got to Player's Horizons with page 73, I felt like I had hit a home run. Is that a production company, Page 73? Yeah, Page 73 uh, is um, one of our sort of co-producers on the Off-Broadway production that helped um, us produce the show with Playwrights Horizons. Okay, so you got that. And that is the production that that brought the Pulitzer people uh, into your life, and then they voted and they said, you, you get the Pulitzer. what is it like to win a Pulitzer? Well, I don't know what it's like in a normal year because I got it like right in the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So it was very strange because I, my mind was not at all focused on that. Um, and once it came, it happened, I didn't really know what to do about it because I couldn't really go anywhere. So you're so, jumping around in your apartment. Like, what do you but, do? How do you, do well, your parents thing- read you the letter? <laughs> Well, no, I mean, you know, everyone started texting me and calling me and emailing me and social media. It just was, that was exciting. And the only thing I could do is I went for a walk um, and I listened to music and that was like the, you know, my form of celebration. But then I came back to my apartment and my team had pulled together a little Zoom champagne toast and people sent me, you know, champagne and we toasted over Zoom and. It was, it was all things told. It was really nice. So it's kind of this incredible thing, you know, for for the people who haven't seen your show, can you kind of share, um, I don't know, I'm sure at this point you're quite, uh, you're quite schooled in kind of how to share the story of your show. A Strange Loop is about a young Black gay man named Usher, who works as an usher at a Broadway show, who is writing a musical about a young black gay man named Usher, who works as an usher at a Broadway show, who is writing a musical about a young black gay man named Usher, who works as an usher at a Broadway show, who is sort of cycling through his own self-perceptions and self-hatred. So how old were you when you started writing this piece, and how old were you when you finished writing it? Um, Oh yeah, I started writing A Strange Loop when I was about 23 years old, and... Uh, to get to Broadway, you know, when we froze on Broadway, um, as of then, I'm 41. Okay. So when you kind of look at this story, would you say that 
you were able to kind of, I don't know, freeze the experience in your 23-year-old self life? Or, or is the show, in fact, even though the character is on the eve of his 26th birthday, um, is, it, is it more encompassing of your life past that age? Or is it really is frozen in time? Well, it's interesting because when I f- first started writing what would become the show, the character was younger than what he would be. Mm-hmm. Or I was younger than what the character would be. Mm-hmm. But then once I sort of figured out what the kind of structure of the piece was, the character was sort of frozen at 25 going on 26. But obviously because I was writing over such a long period of time, all of that time was being compressed into that character. So there's like references, there's points of view, um, things that have changed, you know, some things have not changed, some things that have changed in terms of the character's sort of soup um, over time. There's also things in the character that are drawn from, you know, from when I was younger than 23. Right. So to me... And what a strange and a strange loop is all about reference points, right? And so I feel like the care. So yes, even though like I've gotten older, the character is is still has just has ultimately ended up just being a kind of a repository for a lot of reference points that make up who he is. When you see the show on Broadway, you know, you've described this as being non-autobiographical, but self-referential in terms of the personal, really incredibly personal nature of this musical. So we feel like we get little insights into maybe who you were or maybe how you grew up or little things that were important to you and experiences that you had. But when you got to Broadway, Michael R. Jackson, uh, for whom this show was I don't know, written for, based on, um, has won a Pulitzer. And so some of us in the audience are aware of that. Most people in the audience won't be aware of that. But what do you think about that? Like, there's a little bit of us now knowing the ending. Like, like guess what? But do you? I, I just mean in terms That's... of this musical. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Idea, not the ending of this person's life. The ending yeah. of, I'm going to set out to write something really authentic and 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 different than what is expected of a quote-unquote Broadway musical. Um, and it has been embraced, right, in certain ways. Yeah. So, which is which is incredible. And I'm, I'm right. sure that must feel <laughs> incredible. But did it impact in any way when you were going to sort of rewrite or revisit this? How did you sort of handle that? Um, for me, it kind of was irrelevant to be honest mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the story still was the story and like it's still about this character it's not just about a character like the character isn't just only trying to get a musical to broadway like that's not even really first and foremost on his mind he's like trying to get like his life into like some sort of recognizable shape yeah. he's trying to like feel good about who he is in his body He's trying to, like, he starts off saying, I want to change my life for the better. I want to change my whole life forever, you know? And then he ends by saying, maybe I don't need changing. So, like, that for me 
Broadway or no Broadway, that yeah. story was worth telling. Yeah. Well, it it is so incredible to be in an audience uh, that is not actually, for the most part, reflective of the actors on stage. Um, it is not an audience filled necessarily with people who externally are having the same experience as Usher or the people. And I just found it unbelievable to see collectively what the experience is like you have created. And this is why we go to the theater, right? To sit with a stranger on either side of us, or at least one side in case you, you brought a friend um, and have this collective unifying, emotional, cathartic, inspirational, aspirational. um, And your musical also does what we want a musical to do, which is have songs that you keep singing after you leave the musical. That isn't important to everyone, but I think that's a really incredible thing. It's important to me. Yeah. And you, and you've achieved it. Do you have a favorite song in the show? Um, favorite song on the show. Uh, I'm quite fond of the Strange Loop. That yeah. one for me, I mean, I love Inner White Girl too, but like, the Strange Loop is a song that I've worked on a lot. I did a lot of rewrites of it mm. because I wanted it to really sort of like peel. peel so Usher, even to the last minute, still peeling back the layers. And it's a song that's very inspired by, you know, you know, uh, uh, singer-songwriter Tori Amos, who was like a big inspiration on me. Um, her, she wrote this song called Hey Jupiter that's like this very sort of like just lacerating sort of peeling back the layers of herself kind of song. And I wanted to write something that felt like that, but from through my own experience or through Usher's own experience. And I, I really always like it and the way it lands and, and how it ends and, and where Usher is by the end of it. The and and the memory song which I think is also really powerful and beautiful. Um I mean that's my baby. That's that, like my first one. Was it? Yeah, that's my first song I ever wrote. Okay, that's the so that's, first so that, song you ever wrote. Yeah, yeah, I wrote it in 2004 when I was in grad school. Okay, it is um, it is so deep and it is so beautiful and there's a there's a there's a simplicity to the melody that is so satisfying that we can keep coming back to and um, and it's just incredible storytelling. I mean, it is incredible storytelling with the perfect melody. Um, so let's go back to that time and how that song was born and and why you were writing it at the time and how that has become this musical that I am obsessed with. Sure. So I um, grew up playing piano. I started t- taking piano lessons when I was eight years old. And I mostly learned how to play piano by ear. And then I took a little bit of classical piano when I was in high school. Um, But I also played, and as a result of that, I played piano in church and choir. And I I sang in choirs in an all-city classical chorus. And I was very musically inclined. And I used to try to make up little songs, you know, as I was growing up. But I didn't know how to write lyrics. I didn't understand song form. So I just would noodle around but I didn't know how to write lyrics. But I also was writing poems and fiction. So I had facility with words, but 
couldn't quite put them with the music. So then when I went to grad school to study book writing and lyric writing, um, I finally got a grasp of songwriting, of like form. And at the end of our first year, we had a class where a teacher said, if you are a lyricist who's never written music or a composer who's never written lyrics and you want to try it, go for it. So I decided to try writing my own song. Now, rewinding the clock back, there had been another class earlier that year where I think the assignment was called Writing from Yourself. And a classmate of mine, um, who is another Black gay man, wrote a song. He wrote the lyrics, and another classmate wrote the music, where it was drawn from his personal experience of sort of having a hookup with somebody and waking up and feeling like, shame and sort of guilt about having had sex with a man and he and he sang the song in the class for the assignment and I was just very struck by his performance and the lyrics and the ideas in it because he reminded me of a lot of black gay boys that I knew when I was growing up and because I sort of there was a lot of black gay boys in my teen years who I was around um, in the mid to late 90s and I picked up my notebook and just the words that came up for me were all those black gay boys I knew who chose to go on back to the Lord. And I just wrote that in my notebook and then closed it. Because I used to always write little lyrical ideas for possible songs later. So then fast forward to when we got that assignment, um, I then went down to one of the practice rooms. I flipped through my notebook and my notebook landed on all those black gay boys I knew who chose to go on back to the Lord. And I was like, oh, I'm going to try something with that. And so I just started noodling around, which is what I had always done kind of in high school, but again, not knowing how to put it to words, but now I had a better sense of it. And so I set, you know, all those black gay boys I knew who chose to go on back to the Lord. And I liked that enough that it gave me an end to the song. So I then wrote the whole song. I presented it in my class. I got really, um, I was, it was very, um, applauded by my teachers and my class and I was encouraged to continue writing my own music even though for my thesis project for the second year I would be paired with a composer so that's sort of how I began as a songwriter but and that's how that song came up specifically and was that the melody originally yeah I mean everything about this there were some different lyrics back in the day but the music has always been the same. So you had mentioned, or I read somewhere that this began as a monologue, this piece. Uh And so is that song part of the monologue or were those two separate things? Those were two separate things. So I I wrote the monologue um, right when I graduated from college and I was sort of living in the middle of nowhere to make a queen to this old lady's bungalow style house. And the monologue was just like me, a thinly veiled personal account of a young black gay man walking around New York, wondering why life is so terrible and just sort of trying to make sense of himself. And then I went to grad school and then that's when I began writing songs. And then later, um, a director I was working with at the time had read the monologue and had heard some of the songs and we started trying to put them together because there was thematic overlap. And then that's when they sort of started to transform into this other one-man show version that I performed 
in 2006 at Ars Nova. And when did you start in earnest being an usher? How did that even become your job? What what was that? Um, I started ushering uh, right in my right the summer before I started grad school because I just I needed but I needed some sort of income from somewhere and a friend of mine had who was, had already been started ushering there and he suggested I apply for a job so I did. And that went on for years. And yeah, yeah, I, I ushered all through grad school, and and then for like yeah, I did it for five years. And could you, once you were out of school, could you support yourself? I mean, I know you were living in a ladies' bungalow in in. Queens. Well, I also moved out of there, but okay. Did you have to have other jobs also to make money, or could that be your one form of income to pay the rent? Oh no, I definitely could not support myself on an usher. Like it was because I was a part time usher for most for a big chunk of it until I became full time. And even then, like it it didn't work out. I like was fully living on credit cards and and asking my parents for money. I also was temping. I did everything like any and everything I could possibly do to to like support myself during that time. I also got a writing job on this musical that never went anywhere. That I got like an advance on. It's an, it's, it was an ill-fated, bad idea. I should never have done it. Okay. And I, I'm glad I did it because I learned a lesson that you can't, you should not say yes to everything. Right, right. Even though they say we should, maybe sometimes right. we shouldn't. Yeah. So in your show, you reference the Young and the Restless. Um, mm-hmm. So so we know that you love. Liz Fair, Tori Amos, Carly Simon, there there are so many musical influences in your life. Obviously, at yes. some point, you began to enjoy musical theater also, because mm-hmm. it's a form you've devoted your, your so far, your life to. Yeah. What's your relationship to soap operas? Because I grew up every day running home to watch soap operas. So, so is that what you watched a lot as a young person? Yeah, so as a kid, before I was old enough to go to school... Yeah, my uh, my mother used to drop me off at her aunt's house, my great aunt Ruth. Um, she would watch me, and we would watch Young and the Restless at twelve thirty. Then we would watch Days of Our Lives at one o'clock, and then we'd watch Another World at two o'clock, and then we'd watch Santa Barbara at three o'clock. <laughs> and I just sort of got hooked on them. Yeah, as a, the and stories. Then I, I got my stories, and then I kept watching them like in on days off, on during the summer. Um, I would watch them, and then I'd figure out how to record them, you know, on VHS when I was in high school, and I would watch them while I was doing my homework when I got home at night. Um, I was just, and I wanted to write for soap operas. That's actually why I, that's what I, like, thought, when I got, thought when I got into NYU for yeah. dramatic writing, my plan was that I would go to NYU, and I would, like, get a job writing on a soap opera. And that is that something that ever like did you try to get an internship while you were in I school? In, I interned at All My Children in the production office, and I interned at ABC Daytime for the network. So, what was that like? Sort of, there's the thing that you dreamed about, and then you're suddenly in the inner sanctum of the thing, even slightly. What what was that like? I mean, it was very exciting for me because I got to see these like soap stars every day that I like it like worshipped and who I 
was, you know, excited about. And I loved the shows and it, but it was also like a pretty grueling job in some ways because, because I was, because I also, I, I interned, I, if I were then more thoughtful, I would have gotten an internship in the writing office, which was different than the production office, but that wasn't available that semester. So I had to do a lot of like carrying these big, heavy tapes around up and down West End Avenue from, you know, the All My Children yes. um, and The View, where because All the Children and The View used to be filmed in the same place. Um, I'd have to carry those all the way from there, all the way down to the network offices at the other end of West End Avenue and 66th Street. Um, but but all in all, I was excited to be there, um, and I kept thinking that I would, you know, get my foot in the door somewhere as a soap writer somehow. Well, which never happened. It no, you. But you it also read. ended up that ended up being for the best for all kinds of reasons. Yes, clearly. Um, so, you know, I'm sure you hear a lot of people use words like brave, right? When they describe your show, did it, did it ever occur to you not to be quite as authentic and open and sort of out there with, with so many of the the topics or subjects that your play deals with? Is, Is there any part of you that has ever been shy about exposing things or worrying people will think, oh wait, they're gonna think it's me because I wrote everything in this. They're gonna or or how did you even come to terms with that? Well, I think because I spent so much time in total obscurity that it it didn't matter. Like I if I was gonna do it, I was gonna do it. Like I I couldn't have to do it. Like the whole premise of what Usher is doing is that he wants to show real life. And that's what I want to do as well, you know. Um, and so that meant being fearless, and that's something you know that I think is one of one of my strengths is my fearlessness. And and so I, I mean, maybe there were times, you know, especially when we were moving toward production, and I might have been like, "Oh, are people going to think this is me?" But I worried less about that in terms of like the personal as much as the artistic. But yeah. the line between those two things is so thin. Yeah. And I just was like, I wanted people to feel like this is a work of art and not a diary entry. Right. And that's been something, I a battle that I, I still have to have with people who only want to see this as like an autobiographical account of my life, which it really, that's not an accurate way to describe it. And the best example you know, the best analogy I can make about that is that Pablo Picasso, and I'm not comparing myself to Pablo Picasso, but I'm just saying he he made like self-portraits that are like distorted. But like, if you so if you look at his self-portraits, you go, that's an autobiography. It's something, it's, it's something else. It's like a self-perception. That's, and that's what I think a strange loop is. And it's also self-perception from like a different time. Usher is 25 going on 26. I'm 41. When the show went up at Players Horizons, I was 38. So even then, it was like a different thing. So it had it wasn't really about my bravery. For me, it was about my artistry. About like the colors I use, the strokes, the if if it were a painting or something. Like it was 
yes, I did draw from personal experience to write it, but I also made something. And that's, you know, sort of the message I've been trying to get out into the world. But some people don't want to hear that because they want it to be that I bled on the page and, and that's what it is. When did the idea to have everyone in the show, the sort of, they're, they're named, all the characters in, in this play are named, you know, Usher's Thoughts. Those are, it's sort of the Greek chorus idea for those of you who haven't gotten to see it yet. And and each of the magnificently talented, extraordinary actors that you have in this show are Black and queer. That's been part of the tapestry um, of this production that makes it uh, spectacular to behold. Um, was it always like that in your mind when you wrote it? Was that sort of a demand you made as a writer or did that happen organically over time? Um, it wasn't the the original idea at all because in part because the thoughts weren't even really fully defined. I kept on trying to figure out like, who they were for yeah. a long time. And it was actually Stephen Brackett's my director, who first sort of suggested that we cast it with all Black and queer folks. And that sort of, like, was one clue, because I was very intrigued by the concept of that. And so we did that in our first reading together. And But even then, the thoughts still weren't really defined. And so um, it took me a lot of years of continuing to rewriting and, and working on a piece to be like, oh, they're the thoughts. And, like, this is how they operate. And how does it feel to look up on that stage and also to see so many, I mean, your show has been honored in so many ways this this Tony season and has as have the performers in it. Um, how is that super gratifying for you on oh, some level? It's, it's so gratifying because so many people on this cast have been with me for almost the entire ride. John Andrew Morrison has been singing the song periodically since October 1st, 2008. Um, and he's stuck, stuck by me. Um, Jason Beasy since 2012. James Jackson since 2010. Like so many of them. To, and for them to finally get the recognition for me uh, has been incredible. El Morgan. My God, like she's fantastic. And she's been so kind of like under the radar for so long that I'm so excited to see her be celebrated. Do you feel like you have a, a community, your community? I do. I mean, I think that it's it's my the theatrical community at large, but I also think it's my strange family in particular, like the people around me, like my director, Stephen Brackett, my choreographer, Roger Feather Kelly, my music director, Rona Siddiqui, my orchestrator, Charlie Rosen, lighting designer, Jen Shriver, Arnolfo Maldonado, the set designer, Montana Levy Blanco, our costume designer. So many people who are like part of my tribe, I feel. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to have a theatrical family of people who I can turn to. You mentioned before we started recording that you are working on something else now. What What is in your head right now as we chat? What are you going to go back to writing when we finish today? Um, I'm, my next musical is a show called White Girl in Danger. And it's drawn from my love of Lifetime movies and soap operas. Because I never got to be the soap opera writer. And it's basically about a 
black soap opera character who wants to be in a white storyline and what happens when the writer of her universe gets grants her wish and is this something that you're collaborating on with other people or is this just you this is just me i mean i'm certainly collaborating with like a whole team of people because it's a very complex crazy show but i i'm writing the book music and lyrics to that as well and so do you start with lyrics or do you start with music generally when you write? Um, it tends to be they come together in like the form of like a hook or a verse or a chorus or something like that. And are you like, are, are you someone who has to write like I write from this time to this time every day? I need this on my desk. Like sort of how do you what's your process for for creativity? Um, it sort of depends on any deadline that I have and that will really dictate it. Like, although I will say that I used to be like a night writer and now I'm much more of a daytime writer. I think just because I've gotten older and I just have to go to bed at a certain point. I can't like stay up all night writing the way I used to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I just have to touch upon this because so much of the show is about this person. And and what is so beautiful is about this person who both is so loved, deeply, deeply loved by his family. And I think many of us who grew up in any kind of religious household understand how much our parents – spirituality and their belief system is at odds with who we are the amount of love in your play is it's just so beautiful because it really judges it judges no one right it just it comes from such a pure place of love so a thank you for that i mean it's such a beautiful thing to see right like the gray the gray areas of all of this stuff um and so i think your parents must have felt all the love that went into this play. Um, but is this, are these conversations you guys had not on stage, but in your own life? Um, I mean, I've certainly gone on my own journey with my parents in my life, but the show is like a different thing because, you know, my parents had never seen anything that I had written like ever until Playwrights Horizons. And when they saw it, they, they, I think they finally understood what I was doing in New York all these years. And how talented you are and how, yeah. And, yeah. and they were so, so proud and so excited. And they like, were so impressed by just the, everything that went into it. And I don't, I, I can't say that they understand everything about the show, but right it doesn't matter. Like they, they just like see that I'm doing something that makes me very happy and they know how hard it was and how many years I struggled and how many phone calls were they, where they would be like, did this pan out? Did that pan out? I'm like, no, that fell through. That fell through. This didn't, Oh, I'm still waiting on this. I'm still waiting on, to hear from that producer or that or whatever, whatever, whatever. And so for the show to then be as, celebrated as it has been up until this point for them has been like like the pride of their lives like they they now are fully invested in everything that I do um and in my career and in my work and they want everybody to love it and they and so it's not it's so anything else about like you know 
accepting Usher's gayness or my gayness. Or, it's, it's so irrelevant at this point because we have gone through our own cycle of that. And it's not really about the play at this point. But how amazing, like for you, for you yeah. as a human, like for yeah, yeah. doing everything it's, else to have that kind of, I don't know, peace. But that's not, that's right. yeah, like that's just so extraordinary. Um, before I let you go, uh, is there a little known fact that you can share about Michael R. Jackson? A little known fact. Um, a little known fact about me is that I met both, Rosa Parks and Ben Carson when I was 11 and 12 years old. <laughs> it was I met Ben Carson at a spelling bee, like an all city spelling bee thing where I was the runner up and I got to go and like, you know, I guess in case the winner at my school couldn't do it and I would step in. I don't know, but I was there and I met him. You could have an all like about a, Eve moment at the spelling right. bee if you wanted, right? And then I met Rosa Parks because I had been in the school play about the civil rights era where I played Martin Luther King. And then we went to, and, and the, the people who were directing it were connected to her to something. And we got to go to like a, a breakfast luncheon or something. And she was there and I got to like shake her hand and it was like a really surreal kind of experience. I just have to ask you one more thing. You know, your name is Michael Jackson, right? And I wonder, yeah, yeah. and there's an R in the middle there. A, what is the R for? Oh, um, the R stands for Ramon. Okay. Was that a thing growing up having that name? Um, I mean, it certainly was a, always a conversation piece and nobody ever forgets my name. So it definitely was a thing because like wherever I go, Michael Jackson's ghost haunts me and, and growing up, certainly the various controversies around him followed me as a child. So that was annoying. But it's just it part was of what who it was. you are. Yeah, yeah. It's part of your story. Um, Michael R. Jackson, I am just over the moon that I got to talk with you today. I wish you such a speedy recovery. Thank you. uh, I will just look forward to the next thing. I just can't wait to see all the things. Feel well, and thank you, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. One more thing, I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts social media intern is Sophia Rosenbaum. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working 
The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.